Guys, what a privilege to be with you guys, One Tribe. Uh, I have for many years been speaking to Imbonisi. We've had the privilege. You guys, let me just say this. You guys have a gracious leader. I know this because we have shared dormitories together and he has put up with my snoring on more than one occasion. But in some of those kind of dorm sharing moments, uh, he has said, hey, it would be great to have you sometime. And I have many times considered, could I get here? And here I stand. And I want to just bring you greetings from our church in Cape Town. Uh, you guys are brothers and sisters in the Lord as part of this family of churches called Advance. And it's a real privilege to, on behalf of the global team, and also our family uh, common ground in Cape Town, just say how's it to you guys and to, to bring greetings. And it's so cool to be family like this, isn't it? I, I love it. So what I want to do is I want to ask you, won't you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3? And uh, if you're familiar with the text, this is a letter that's written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. You can say Philippi if you want to, some do. And he's actually writing. One of the main reasons he writes this letter is he writes to say thank you to them for their generosity. And I'm not actually going to be speaking about that at all this morning, but I do want to take a moment just to say thank you to one tribe for your generosity. So one of the functions that I kind of fulfill on the global leadership team is I often sit at the intersection of need and resource where churches kind of step in and say, we would like to be a part of advancing the kingdom in this way. We'd like to serve that crisis in this way. And I want to say, one, this is a generous church. You guys are regularly and faithfully generous to the mission of Christ, to the very ends of the earth. So thank you for that generosity. And secondly, I want to say thank you to the leadership team and to the faithfulness of the people here today for your ongoing generosity, because at times when requests have made been made, this team has been quick to answer that call. And so I want to, as kind of Paul did to the church there, I want to, on behalf of the global leadership team, say thank you to you guys for your sacrificial giving and generosity. Why don't you guys give yourselves a hand real quick, right? And then, like I said, that's not what I'm going to be speaking about. What I want to speak to you about is the clash of kingdoms. The clash of kingdoms. What am I talking about? I'm talking about, maybe you can agree with me here, what seems to be a heating up between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, a, a heating up in the clashes and the forces of these two kingdoms coming into contact with each other. And it feels like, I'm not sure, you tell me if you see this at all, things are becoming more polarized in our worlds. Have you seen that? The reality is that in this world, it feels that the kingdom of heaven is becoming more and more at odds with, or maybe it's the kingdom of this world that's becoming more and more at odds with the kingdom of heaven. Things that 50 years ago, we couldn't even conceive of thinking or, or, or seeing happen in our world and society seem to be happening pretty readily around us. Each person is, is somewhat defining truth for themselves with statements like this. Statements like this. This is my truth. You do you. This is my truth. 
Younger and younger children in many countries now choosing to be recognized according to other genders just as they feel led. People now having to choose between 21 different gender identity descriptors. Gone are the days of two boxes for boys and girls, right? In our worlds today. Somehow people seem to be working harder and harder. I'm not sure if you, you've noticed this. I'm not sure if you've seen these tendencies in your own lives, but people working harder and harder to, to kind of keep up with these kind of TV commercial ideals. And yet people seem less satisfied with their lives somehow. Have you seen this in our world today? The world seems more connected by technology. I'm so glad that you guys are speaking about this. I believe you're doing a a sermon series. The world is more connected than it's ever been, and yet we are also dealing with a loneliness crisis in our worlds today. So glad you guys are speaking to the realities of these developing dynamics because I believe it's clear the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven are at odds with each other, and that tension seems to be growing. And that's what I want to speak to us about this morning. And and I believe the Apostle Paul has some powerful things for us to freshly get to grips with. We can maybe be left wondering in our worlds, how is it that God would have us live today? Have you ever asked that question? I've got three kids. One's about to go into high school and I'm freshly going, how do I prepare my child who confesses Christ to live in the reality of this world that we live in today. See, what can happen is we can give ourselves either to truth or to grace. Sometimes if we give ourselves to too much truth, what happens, we can be experienced as legalists and we can be experienced as being so dogmatic and uncaring and unkind in our worlds. And yet, if we just give too much grace, what can happen is we can become sugar sweet and kind of liberal pluralists just saying, whatever works for you, whatever works for you. And we find ourselves having nothing to offer the worlds. And and I want to say one tribe church, can we freshly recognize that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of truth and grace and the intersection, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the intersection of the cross is finding the intersection of truth and grace and living out of that place into our world. See, God's called us both out of this world, but he's also sent us into this world. And that brings with it some complexity, doesn't it? It does. Sometimes we can just be inclined. I'm not sure if any of you have ever thought this thought. We can be inclined to just want to run away. Let's just go and farm, right? And we'll be just us, great little Christian holy huddle, and it'll be all amazing and nothing will ever go wrong. Not true. Not true. And yet God calls us into this world. He's called us out, but he's also sent us in. That's who we are as God's people. And as we come to the text, what I want us to realize is this clash of kingdoms that we feel so acutely in our day and age. I was speaking to my dad the other day, and he's in his late 60s, and he was saying, you guys feel it now, but I remember feeling the exact same things when you went to high school. The clash of kingdoms is nothing new. And as we look at this text, Paul is going to actually speak about the reality that this clash of kingdoms has been ongoing for thousands of years, thousands of years. Let's get to the text here. What we're going to do is we're going to look at from verse 12. Okay, from verse 12. He says this, 
And this is going to be the way I unpack it is just verse by verse, and we're going to just draw some things out of this that I hope is going to equip us as the people of God to know what it means to live for this kingdom of heaven, to live out this kingdom that we have been welcomed into. And for those of you who might find yourselves in the room today, and you're still deciding what you believe about all this Christianity and Jesus stuff, I believe there's an invitation for you, an invitation which has already been extended this morning, but the the text again, I believe, extends an invitation to us, to those of you who would maybe still say, I have not crossed that line, but maybe today is that day. So it's the great apostle Paul, and this is what he says in, in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal. Paul is kind of mid-thought here. You recognize that, right? You can see it's in the middle of a chapter, uh, and I'm just picking up in the middle of this chapter. And he's been speaking about laying down his whole life. He's been speaking about laying down his whole life, and he's been speaking about laying down all his human credentials because he has gained Christ. And that's of greatest importance to him. And then he says, not that I've already obtained all this. In other words, I haven't fully got it. I haven't fully attained it all. In many ways, there's still room. He says, or have I already arrived at my goal? I want us to pause for a moment because this is the great apostle Paul. And he's speaking. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. How many of us have come across Christians who who act like they're there? I'm there. I've got it all together. One Tribe Church, you do well to regularly tell each other, I'm not there yet. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not there yet. Maybe you feel more comfortable to say, you're not there yet, okay? We're not there yet. Paul is exercising a great humility and recognizing a deep truth. He is still a work in progress. My wife will tell you I'm still a work in progress, right? Don't have to go very far. Wives, why did I see hands raised there? We don't have to go very far to be convinced of this truth. Paul continues, he says, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. I'm not there yet, but I press on. I press on. Don't you love that? He's pressing on. How many of you can say in your life today, you recognize that you have needed to do some pressing on? Is it just me? I press on in my work. Maybe that's where you're pressing on. I I press on in my parenting. I press on in my ministry. I press on in my dependence upon God. I press on in these COVID realities where the communion isn't great, right? My daughter the other day in church went, do we have to take communion today? That's how much she loves those little wafer things in the top there, right? Paul's saying, I press on. See, God's taken hold of me, and I still need to take hold of the fullness of what that means to respond to that. That's what he's saying. But he says there's this posture, this kind of activity of pressing on. He is not saying, let me just say this. He is not saying, I press on to save myself. That would be a wrong understanding. No, he's saying, Christ has already saved me, and therefore my right response is to press on into the fullness 
of that for which he has saved me. Christ has taken hold of me. Christ Jesus took hold of me is exactly how he says it. He continues, verse 13, brothers and sisters, again humble, I do not consider myself yet to taken to have taken hold of it. And he's kind of saying fully. I haven't fully taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards that which is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. How many of us have heard these words before? I'm guessing most of us. How many of us have heard these words many times before? I'm guessing most of us. But I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will do a deep work in us to transform us as people who find ourselves in this kingdom of light and kingdom of heaven, that we would find ourselves taking on this posture that we see Paul having here today. Why do I say that? Can I just level with you? I have the privilege of getting around the world. I have the privilege of sitting in so many different contexts. And most probably the number one thing that breaks my heart in the church of Christ is an inset apathy, which we all seem to be somehow comfortable with. I think it breaks my heart because I think it breaks God's heart. Right? And Paul's not saying strive and whip yourself and be more legalistic. No, not at all. He's saying those who rightly understand all that they have received will naturally and rightfully respond to Christ. And they will give the fullness of themselves to him and to his purpose. One Tribe Church, it's my hope to charge you this morning to give yourself to the fullness of him and his purpose with your one and only life. He continues. Actually, sorry, he doesn't continue. Let me just pause here on this posture. Two key things, if we look at this text, is a posture and a perspective. What is Paul's posture? I'm not sure uh, how much cricket you guys play here. I know there's a bit of cricket, but not a lot. And all the people who live elsewhere in the world who don't know cricket. Do you understand the difference between being on the front foot and the back foot? So on the front foot pretty much means is you're being aggressive and ready. On the back foot means you're kind of being responsive and hoping you don't get hit in the head, right? You're going to kind of swing your bat at the last minutes. And pretty much what Paul's saying is he's he's saying, I have a front-footed posture when it comes to the purposes of God. So that's his posture. He's saying he's pressing on. There's this front-footed posture. And then what is his perspective? His perspective is this goalward, heavenward perspective. And we see that, I believe, the two come hand in hand. The the perspective of being goldward and and heavenward caused Paul to be on the front foot and to say, I'm pressing in and I'm pressing on. And I want us to take that forward with us. And I want to remind us, where is Paul writing from? He's writing from prison in Rome. Prison in Rome, and yet what is his perspective? His perspective is of goalward and heavenward. And what is his posture? 
pressing in, pressing on. He's, he, he's on the front foot. How many of us have felt somewhat imprisoned by circumstances in our lives? I think we all have in different ways. How many of us have been jailed? Not nearly as many of us, right? It's like he's saying, in this time, in this moment, in this imprisonment, I believe the kingdom of this world would want me to settle. I believe that, that, that they would want me to submit and succumb and just accept the reality of my circumstances around me. But no, I am not of this kingdom. I'm of a, a heavenly kingdom. And so I give myself to pressing on. I have had a greater glimpse of a greater reality. And so I'm postured towards that greater reality, not this circumstantial reality. I want to drive this home by telling you a story. Do we have any Americans in the room? A couple of, wow, quite a lot of Americans. Okay, you guys might appreciate this story. So your kids just claimed being Americans and mom's going, we're not American. Okay, interesting, right? Um, some work to do there, citizenship dynamics. We'll get there just now in the text. Maybe I can help you. Okay, so the reality is I grew up in, in the States. I grew up in Dallas, Texas until I was almost 10 years old. And I had a couple of friends. And what happened to my accent? She wants to know. I then went to a small town in the middle of the South African countryside and had all of that Texan accent knocked right out of me, right? Because that's what happened with my accent. But this is beside the points. Stop getting me off point here. Okay. So what happens is I'm nine years old and I go to my friend. I can't remember if it was Brian or, J or Jason. They were both my friends. The stories get muddled in my mind. I'm too old now. But I go to this friend's birthday party and he is Hispanic. And so what does he have at his birthday party? A pinata, right? Okay, and so what am I doing? I'm sitting at this little table, standing at this table, and I've got in my one hand cake, and I've got in my other hand a purple fizzy juice, and I'm having the time of my life, right? I'm eating my cake, I'm eating my, my uh, drinking my purple juice, and then his dad, Jason O'Brien, whatever his name was, his dad says, we're going to uh, hit the pinata now, and he explains the whole rules to us, and I'm not going to try a Mexican accent right now, but he pretty much says this is how the rules work. He is going to be blindfolded, he's going to be spun around, and then he's going to hit this paper mache thing until it breaks and all the sweets fall out, and he says these are the only rules. What you catch or gather, you get to keep. The kids are all in a frenzy, right? They're literally palpitating. They are so excited and everyone is, is shaking with excitement for these sweets that are about to hit the ground. And what do I as a nine-year-old little boy realize in that moment? This stuff is going to get in the way. And so without even concern... Without even concern, it wasn't even a great kind of debate about whether it was worth it or not. I run over to the table, put down my purple juice, put down my cake, and I come and stand ready. I'm on the front foot, right? I'm ready to receive. And Brian gets blindfolded, and he turns around a few times, and he swings, and he misses, and he swings and he misses. And I can't remember how many times this happened, but the, the anticipation was almost too much. And the next thing, the most unexpected, crazy thing happens. Brian hits that pinata near the top. The whole thing breaks off at the stem and comes 
hurtling towards me. And what do I do? Because I was a sports player and a young nine-year-old boy, a fit athlete, I just opened my arms and the whole pinata hit me in my chest and I did the most natural thing there is to do. I wrapped my arms around it and I had it all. I had it all and all the kids came running up and they were trying to grab sweets and Brian or Jason's dad came up to me and he, and he pushed all the kids away and he went, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. The only rule in Mexico, I told you about what you catch or gather, you get to keep. And so what did I do? What did I do? I didn't hoard it to myself. I remember feeling like the champion of the world, standing, I climbed up onto this wall, and I stood on top of this wall and I just threw these sweets out to all the kids, right? I felt like the champion of the world. Why am I telling you this great story from my childhood? Because I believe there is direct parallels in in what's being said here in the posture of Paul. The posture of Paul is saying, if you are of the kingdom of this world, you can find yourselves intrigued with and, and somewhat distracted by these lesser things. But now that you are of the kingdom of heaven, you are one who has put those lesser things down because you have readied yourself to receive and you have received the whole pinata in Jesus Christ. You've got it all. He's given it to you already. And guess what? Even though he's given it to you already, you're not yet living in the fullness of it. There is still a pressing on. Why would we then, if we have laid down lesser things and taken hold of Christ, why would we now settle for these lesser things again? Why? Paul continues in verse 15. Keep that imagery in your mind. We'll come back to it. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of these things. One tribe, do you consider yourselves mature? Paul's saying, won't you take such a view of these things? He's saying, won't you carry with you in your life a heavenly perspective? Do you have a perspective of the kingdom of heaven? Or is it just the kingdom of this world that is filling your perspective? He wants us to know that that is the sign of maturity. Not what lies behind us. You can have a great career. You can be very successful. You can have an amazing track record of serving God. You can have many hours of serving others. You can have a theological degree. But he's saying none of these things count for very much in comparison to all that you have received already. And he's saying, let's press on and let's hold this kingdom of heaven perspective. Paul then continues, he makes a a very cheeky remark. And if some of, and if on some point you think differently, he continues, that too God will make clear to you. So what is he saying? He's kind of saying, hey, guys, you might think that you see this differently, but I know I'm right on this one. And he's saying, if you don't want to believe I'm right on this one, I'm just going to trust God to show you. I'm going to trust God to show you that this is the ultimate agenda happening in our worlds. I'm going to trust God to show you that he is ultimately powerful and sovereign and and good and he is large and in charge. And how many of us know, if you've walked the Christian walk for any amount of time, you know God has his ways of making these things very clear to us. 
Very clear. Another quick story from my childhood. I sneak out of the house the one night. Kids, put your fingers in your ears for a moment and just go, hmm, okay. So I sneak out the house for the one, this one night and I lived in a very small town, okay, very small town and I run down and find my friends and, and, we, and, and I'm coming home and my mom is standing in the driveway praying. I'm like, this is bizarre. She doesn't know, I'm out, where is she? she and I hide behind the wall. And as I'm hiding behind the wall, my mom just walks over and I can just hear she's praying and she's just praying and she's just praying. And then she finds herself standing at the wall and she goes, Brian, what are you doing here? In that moment, there was no denying that there is a God in heaven, right? For me as a little teenage boy, I'm like, how is it that my mom is outside on the driveway praying in the middle of the night and she just finds herself coming right to where I am. I can tell you many more stories of God making himself powerfully known, undeniably known. And Paul's going, hey, I don't feel like I've got to convince you. If you don't want to listen to me, God will do the convincing. God will do the convincing. Paul continues and he takes it from another angle. Verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul's saying, guys, We've been given the whole pinata in Christ. He is our king. He has welcomed us into his kingdom. We are sons and daughters and heirs of the fullness of that. Let's hold fast to all that God has given us. Let's live up to all that means. That's what Paul's encouraging them in. In fact, he actually in chapter one started this train of thought in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the commentators actually help us to understand that he is explaining in this letter, or the way he's explaining this in his letter, this let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ is actually a, a kind of, he's kind of Recognizing the context that they're in, Philippi would have been a Roman colony at the time, and he's kind of contrasting that. See, there would have been this pressure for them to, to kind of live in a worthy manner. A, 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 sorry, how am I saying this? Live in a manner worthy of Rome. That was the call of the day. Live a life worthy of Rome. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, no, don't live a life worthy of Rome. That's way less than you've received. Live a life worthy of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Live out a capital C citizenship, not a, an earthly citizenship. See the clash of kingdoms again at play here. Let's continue. Verse 17. He says, join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, as, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eye on those who live as we do. Don't you find that interesting? Just now he's saying, hey, I haven't made it. He's being humble. I haven't got there yet. I still need to move forward. Now he's saying, follow my example. Follow my example. So what could he be saying? He's not saying follow my example of perfection because he, he knows he's not perfect yet and it can't be attained. He's saying, follow my example in your posture and your perspective. Follow my example in your posture and my perspective. Paul knows that 
He's got the right perspective of the kingdom of heaven, and that has influenced his posture. And he's saying, why don't you follow my example in these things? And then he brings a warning to them. It's kind of like, hey, I would love this for you. And he encourages them and he calls them, but then he also warns them. And he says this, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears. How does Paul feel about this? He feels strongly. There's conviction in his heart. There's compassion in his heart. He wants to contend for their well-being. He says, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul's been using language like brothers and sisters. And now he transitions to using the descriptor enemies. That's a, that's a pretty substantial shift, right? And here's the crazy thing. We'd think he's talking about some other people out there. But Paul is not. He's actually speaking to the church. And he is calling some people enemies. Enemies of the cross of Christ. He's saying these people, oh man, they, they, they're giving in to the clash of kingdoms. These people, they're giving in to the appetites. They're allowing their gods to be their stomachs. Is it just me that from time to time can resemble that comment? I can, right? My God can be my stomach sometimes. And he's saying, you have given in. Your mind is set on earthly things. And he is, he's, he's really contending and he's, he's pleading with them. He's wanting to call them out of this. See, I think we can all think of Christians today. A few people who claim Christianity and then clearly don't live in the truth of that perspective in their lives. How many of us know in our own lives that we can find ourselves inclined to not put down the Coke and the purple fizzy juice? We can find ourselves living so enticed by these smaller things. And he says, actually, when you do that, when you do that, when you give in to that, when you say, I'm a Christian, but you actually just live enticed to these smaller things, you're actually an enemy of the cross of Christ. You are, in a sense, saying, that doesn't count. This is what I want. You're finding yourself opposed to the gospel, the gospel of what Christ has done for us. Lord, may that not be us, right? Paul's warning them. Let's not get sucked in. Let's not get consumed. And here comes the clincher from Paul for us today. Because this is where we see Paul gaining this ultimate motivation and understanding and perspective that allows him to say all of these things. He says this simply, but our citizenship is in heaven. Say that with me. But our citizenship is in heaven. We've been born again into this heavenly citizenship and reality. It is the most life-altering perspective. It changes the way we live to the point where, where I find myself wanting to contend 
as Paul did with his, this audience. I want to contend with this audience. Saying, guys, if this penny hasn't dropped, if this penny hasn't dropped for you, Tim Keller says sometimes we just got to smack the Coke machine on the side until the penny drops. I want to smack some Coke machines here today because I believe this penny has to drop for us. It is so big that if you don't feel like it is ultimate and tr- ultimately and truly and wholly changed your life, maybe the penny hasn't dropped just yet. This truth should cause us to live differently every day with the fullness of our lives. This is the kingdom we are ultimately a part of. That sounds great, doesn't it? Why is it so hard for us then? Why is it so hard for us to live out this heavenly kingdom dynamic every day? Well, I think there's a couple of really good reasons. Firstly, I think it's because we struggle with dual citizenship, especially when one citizenship seems so present, so close. The proximity of all the Coke and fizzy purple juice is so near to us all the time. And this heavenly kingdom can sometimes feel like a faraway future reality. I'm not sure if you resonate with that, but I know I do. That's how I, I, I find this dual citizenship thing not always that easy to, to live out. Secondly, uh, wait, let me just quote John Ortberg here. He says this great quote. He says, the greatest danger for Christians isn't that we will renounce our faith, but rather that we will settle for a lesser tame, distracted version of following Jesus. Doesn't that, I'm not sure it hits me right there, Right. Where I will will settle for a lesser version. Secondly, though, it's not only because we struggle with dual citizenship that it makes this hard to live out. Secondly, I think it's because not many of us are are big on delayed gratification. How many of us are big on that? None of us, right? It's like we live in the microwave world, right? We want our food heated up and within two minutes, forget about the oven in 20, 50 minutes, showing my lack of culinary skills here. The reality is we, we, we like instant gratification. Why wait for some future possible reality if I can have this right now? Third reason that this kingdom clash happens in our own lives and it's hard to hold on to this kingdom reality is sometimes I think we're a little distracted and busy doing some kingdom building of our own. I'm not sure if you've recognized this, but it happens. We establish our, our name. We establish our rule. We establish our reign. We establish our realm. We, we, we build our own kingdoms way too easy. I'm not sure if you follow, uh, follow any of the like Instagram kind of crazes of the world, but those who've got heaps of followers actually refer to their followers as their empire. Sounds like kingdom building to me, right? I've got 4 million followers. Look at my empire. We do some kingdom building of our own. And here's the last one, and I think it's actually the deepest. It's the one I would love you to reflect on as you go home today. I think one of the realities is it's hard. It's hard to to give ourselves to the heavenly kingdom because we have another kingdom script for our lives. 
This other kingdom script is not the brave heart kind of Scottish rush in and swords and that kind of stuff, right? It's not that one. It's also not the British monarchy. Those guys are just poster fillers, right? They, they, they don't have any real power. The British people in the room look at me like touching me on my studio, right? Sorry, that is a very South African saying and you have no context for it, but it means you're messing with me. Here's the, here's the kingdom I'm talking about. Here's the kingdom script that I believe many of us are, are living according to in our lives. It's a different kingdom. It's not a kingdom you expect it to be. It's the Disney kingdom script for your life. How does it work? I'm not sure if the Disney kingdom script has reached Nairobi, but I think it has. I think it has. Here's how it works. It gets deep inside of us, right? And here's the danger of the Disney kingdom script for our lives. So often we will find ourselves thinking that we are Cinderella and not the stepsisters. We think it's all going to work out amazingly and perfectly for us. Secondly, what can happen according to the Disney script for our lives is we all believe that we will always find it kind of ending happily ever after. Getting a little closer to home, another reason we find ourselves living according to this Disney script and, and sometimes getting it wrong is we always see the story finding its conclusion within their lifetime. Not sure if you've noticed that. But what, as we give ourselves to the kingdom of heaven, we've got to realize that this is an eternal script that we are just playing our one little part in time. One tribe church, you're doing fantastic but you are just playing your one little part in time. And we've got to be faithful to that and not always think, hey, we're going to change the world right here in our lifetimes across the whole globe. No, we're going to play our part in a much bigger script because we're not the kind of center of the universe as the Disney script would have us believe. Like Life very seldomly works according to the Disney kingdom script. That's why they call it the magic kingdom, right? We've been raised on this screenplay and it makes it doubly hard for us to dethrone ourselves and give ourselves to the true king. It makes it hard for us to stop building our kingdoms and to start building his. It makes it hard for us to take on Paul's posture towards a heavenly goal. It makes it hard for us to see past all the distractions of our lives. But Paul doesn't leave us right there. After this warning to us, he says, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Again, I think these are very famous words, and so there's a danger that we skim over them. But they are deep with kingdom clash truth. Deep with kingdom clash truth. See, I want to I quickly take you to a grid. Can we put that little grid up there on the screen real quick? See, we've got the kingdom of heaven on the one side, right? And so we've got the kingdom of this age. And, and Paul tells us some really important things about the kingdom of heaven. 
And I think we do well to to counter that with the kingdom of our age. He says, in the kingdom of heaven, we eagerly await a savior, someone from the outside who has the power to come and rescue us. The kingdom of the age, the Gnostic notion is find the spark within. Look for strength inside yourself. Kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ is Lord. The kingdom of this age is I am the Lord of my life. The kingdom of heaven says God is sovereign and in control. This is all found here in this verse. And the kingdom of this age says I have to make it happen for myself. Kingdom of heaven says God will transform me into his likeness if I'll allow him to. And the kingdom of this age says, I must transform myself into my preferred likeness. And we can extrapolate that out into beauty and gender and preferences and a whole bunch of stuff. The kingdom of heaven has this posture. I conform to his will and to his ways as I wait on him currently and eternally. The kingdom of this age says, I perform my preferred life script. But what happens when it doesn't work out that way? I'm left hopeless and helpless if it doesn't go my way. Can you see the clash of the kingdoms? Can you see that the the kingdom of heaven is here and and the the earthly kingdoms would want to distract us and pull us away? And so what does he say? Some people would say that the kind of passage ends there, but I actually believe with the commentators that he actually goes into the first verse of the next chapter. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and I long for my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Right perspective, right posture, not giving in to these lesser things. Stand firm in the Lord in this way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we want to ask that you today would just freshly open our eyes. Open our eyes that we, like Paul in the constraints of his prison cell, would be able to have right perspective of who you are, all that you've done, and the great joy that you call us into. God, I pray that not a single person would hear in anything I'm saying here today a striving in our personal strength or ability. But God, that every person here today would experience the invitation of the kingdom of heaven freshly today. That we have an opportunity to press on in taking hold of that for which you took hold of us. God, I pray that you would mark one tribe church with right perspective and a posture of being on the front foot, pressing on into the fullness of the things that you have for them as a community, as a church, as beloved brothers and sisters. May they walk in step with this gospel. May they live out the fullness of this and take their stand in the kingdom of heaven here in Nairobi, Lord. May they be able to pray as in Nairobi. May it be as in May it be in Nairobi as it is in heaven. God, may they be able to pray that prayer freshly today. Align their hearts to the fullness of your heavenly kingdom and not succumb to these lesser kingdom calls on their lives.
We pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.